And open your scriptures to Genesis 17. The first patent in the United States for barbed wire was issued in 1867 to Lucian Smith of Kent, Ohio. Barbed wire was an enormous technological leap forward at the time on par with something like a microwave for us or maybe a personal computer or even the internet. It was that much of a leap forward in agriculture. Joseph Glidden, one of the top producers of barbed wire at the time, received a letter from a rancher that in part read like this. He's describing barbed wire and he says, it takes no room, exhausts no soil, shades no vegetation, is proof against high winds, makes no snowdrifts, and is both durable and cheap. Prior to barbed wire, if you did not have thousands and thousands of dollars as a rancher to build a stone or wood fence, you would simply let your cattle roam free. Thus, it is not uncommon for different herds to intermingle with each other and also for rustlers to take and steal. So, a method of ownership was developed called branding where a metal symbol of your ranch, unique to your ranch, was heated up and the animal was visibly marked with your ranch symbol. It was a way for people and other ranchers to understand that that steer belonged to you. Listen to how 1 Peter 2 describes you and me. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. We belong to God. We are God's possession. We are a marked out people. If we can continue the metaphor, we have been branded by God. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. Look at me with verse 1 of chapter 17 in Genesis. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multitude multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring." After you throughout their generations, an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring shall keep my covenant. All your offspring after you throughout all generations, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with the money, your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be with your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she'll be, she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring and his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking to him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his household, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Wonderful word of the Lord. Our text today is about putting his God putting his covenant mark on his people. This has been decades, it has been decades since God appeared to Abram in Ur and promised him land and a people. It had been 25 years since Abram walked the promised land symbolically from north to south, east to west. It had been a decade and a half or so since he had promised him this by passing through the severed animals. It had been 13 years since Abram and Sarai took the promised child into their own hands. 
And then there were 13 years of silence. And Abram was now 99 years old. And God appeared to him once again to seal these covenant promises, to give him an external sign. We've been talking about these promises since chapter 12. Promises of land, 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 a son, a son, a son, a people, a people, a people, all throughout these last several chapters. And here in the first eight verses of chapter 17, Yahweh promises them again, doesn't he? Did you notice it? Eleven times he mentioned offspring, multitude, multiply, nations, land. Over and over, he's, he's reiterating these promises to him once again. And later on, in our text, he even gets more specific with these promises, doesn't he? Not just a people, but a multitude of nations. Not just men, but kings. Not just a son, but he's put a dot on the eye, hasn't he? Isaac. And not just a God, but he's going to be their God. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. You see that reiterated there. In the middle of verse 7, he's going to make an everlasting covenant to be God to you. And at the end, he says, "Another, I'm going to be everlasting possession of the land, and I will be their God. Here God is promising an intimacy, a possessiveness, a belonging. <coughs> it seems the promises keep getting better and better, don't they? Keep getting more and more lavish, more and more stunning, even down to the way that they are going to bear Isaac in a miraculous way. In verses 15 through 21, Yahweh explains that he, 99 and and Sarah at 89 are going to have a child. They're way past childbearing age. And this promise actually pushes the limits of Abraham's faith. It pushes the limits. Has your faith ever been pushed to the limit, to the edge? I think that's where Abraham is when he laughs in verse 17. Have you ever been given good news after a long time of waiting? Maybe you've tried to get pregnant over the years and finally you get that news and you laugh. Or maybe you've been praying and you have, you have cancer in your family or maybe even in your own body and you pray and it is in remission and you laugh. Maybe you've been praying for a salvation for a son or daughter or parent or loved one or family, friend, and you hear the news that they've given their life to the Lord and you laugh. Hope against hope. God comes through and you burst out laughing. That's what's going on here. It's not a laugh of doubt. How do we know that, people? Because Scripture tells us that. In Romans chapter 4, we're given the great exegesis of that very verse. When Paul writes, Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God said to him that many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. 
goes on to say, Abram never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in it, this brought God glory. He was fully convinced that God was able to do whatever he promised. This is where Abraham was in his heart, in his mind. Scripture tells us that he did not laugh in doubt or disbelief, as Sarah does in the next chapter. Now, this laugh was not a lack of faith, but faith being pushed to the limits. I love how Kent Hughes, the expositor, puts it, a sweet symbol of a struggling faith. A sweet symbol of a struggling faith. If you're struggling in your faith, that's not sin. When your faith is being pushed to the limits and you're struggling, that is not sin. So why does he ask the question about Ishmael? We've got a son already, just use him. Is it one in the hand is worth two in the bush? Why push it, he's saying. Answer? Because God reveals himself as El Shaddai. We just sang about El Shaddai. It means God Almighty. God is all-powerful. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And that is what he is trying to show dear, sweet Abraham. And that is what he tries to show dear, sweet you and me when he pushes our faith to the limits I am El Shaddai. I am God of the impossible. God's promises this, and he is going to fulfill it. The promised child is going to come through Sarah, even though her womb, as it says in Romans 4, is as good as dead. His promises are like oak. This is what we have to start sifting through, brothers and sisters. His promises are sure. His promises are solid, dependable, trustworthy. And that's, when we think about those promises, it increases our faith. There's a wonderful Agatha Christie novel called Her. Hercule Perot's Christmas, and one of the characters in there named Simon Lee would go repeatedly to his wall safe where he stashed a bunch of uncut African diamonds. And Christie writes that Lee would open the safe and pick up handfuls of diamonds and run them through his fingers just for the sheer delight of feeling it. Brothers and sisters, that's what we should be doing with the promises of God. When is the last time you read the promises of God and just delighted in them? When is the last time you picked up Romans 8, 20, uh, 28, 20 that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and just sifted that from your heart down into your mind, from your mind down into your heart? When is the last time you picked up the uncut diamonds of Jeremiah 29:11 that says for I know the plans I have for you plans for hope and a future and you sifted that and it went from your mind to your heart 
Or if you're faint of heart, you pick up the uncut diamonds of John 10.28, whom I have in my hand no man can pluck out. And allow that to sift from your mind down into your heart. Give you assurance of your faith. Or if you're exhausted from trying to earn your salvation, exhausted, and you pick up the diamonds of Matthew 11.28, where he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the rest of your souls. Pick up these diamonds and let them and sift them in your hands. I have a whole page here. I'm not going to go into it. And sift them. Just like Simon Lee with those uncut diamonds, let them flow from here to here and let them build up your faith. Because that's what God's promises always will do. What God promises, He fulfills. And God is so kind and so merciful here and with us that he gives them a sign of this, the seal of this, the covenant sign. That's what we see in verses 9 through 14. He reiterates the promises and then he gives them the sign, the external sign. He didn't have to do that. He gives them another visual. So he tells Abraham to circumcise every male in his family, bought or born. Circumcision wasn't unique in the ancient Near East. I mean, this, this is not just unique of, of Abraham and his descendants. Many peoples practiced it. But for Abraham and his people, it was to be a special and significant sign in their flesh. It was to be a sign of the covenant. I hope that as I read this, you heard it over and over and over again, didn't you? My covenant, my covenant, I'm making my covenant, my covenant. This is all about the covenant here. And he says right in the middle of of, uh, verse 11, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. This practice was to have special spiritual significance. They are God's people now. God's possession. They belong to God. Much the way baptism functions in the new covenant. It is a belonging sign. Whether you practice believer's baptism or infant baptism, it's a mark of belonging. If the person that believes in infant baptism, why do we sprinkle an infant? for very much the same reason that Abraham circumcised his infants. Circumcision was not not salvific, just like infant baptism is not salvific. Circumcision didn't didn't save that Jewish baby, but it did signify that you were blessed by being born into a covenant family. That was the sign. That you were part of a covenant community that you were blessed to see your parents pray to Yahweh and not Molech or go to an Asherah pole. You were fortunate to have the stories of Yahweh told in your household and scripture read later on. You're blessed to have the sign of belonging on you. 
And much like Abraham, who circumcised their babies at eight days old, Paedo-Baptists teach and model. That's what Abraham did. Praying that someday their child will put their faith in Yahweh and repent of their sins and follow. For the person that believes in believer's baptism, credo-baptist, being baptized when you repent and believe in Christ is the fulfillment of circumcision. It's a sign that belongs to people entering into the covenant through profession of faith. Upon profession of faith in Jesus Christ, not as an infant, they're given the covenant sign of baptism. Baptism by water. Peter said at Pentecost, repent and be baptized into the covenant. That's all to say what I want to stress here, whether you believe in infant baptism or believer's baptism. I want to stress what we have in common. And that is not the when, not the how, but the what we have in common. We all have in common... And we all believe, like Abraham did, that this is a sign of belonging. It's a sign of belonging. Circumcision means you belong to God. That God has put his mark on you. And there are certain implications of that mark in our text. And I want to go over three briefly. First covenant, the first implication. I'm oh, going the wrong way. First one flows from what we just said. God has put his mark on you. God is in charge. That's the first implication of our text. God is in charge. God's in charge of his covenant. Nine times he says here, my covenant. He initiates the covenant. The Lord appeared to Abraham in verse 1. He sets the terms of the covenant. Isaac, not Ishmael. And he demands a response from this covenant. Verse 9, as for you. I think it's crystal clear in this chapter that God is in charge here. I mean, God speaks most of this chapter, doesn't he? God is in charge here. Just like the ancient Near East suzerain king who would make a treaty with a lesser king. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in chapter 15. The greater king would make a covenant, and the greater king was in charge of that treaty, in charge of that covenant. The, the greater king is in charge, not us. The greater king always sets the terms of the covenant, not us. Ian Duguid writes in his commentary, could you imagine a lesser king in ancient covenant ceremony saying to the greater king, I'm happy to be in covenant with you. But I want to be in charge of the relationship. I tell you what you can do and what you can be like, but don't come making demands of me. That would, that would be insane. That, that king would be drawn and quartered right there. But many times that's how we treat God in this covenant we're in, don't we? You know, you can be in charge of my life this far. Here are the limits that I put on the lordship in my life. I'll obey until it gets a little too costly. Either my re reputation, 
my lifestyle. I'll follow, but only so far. I want to be in charge is what we are telling El Shaddai, God Almighty. That's what we're communicating when we say those things, either out loud or in in the quietude of our own minds. We have to remember that he is God Almighty. This is the first time in Scripture that he, he reveals himself as El Shaddai. This is the first time he says, my name, my character is God Almighty. He's in charge. What we are entering into with God is not a democracy. Cornelius Plantinga writes about the spiritual dangers that living in a democracy actually infiltrate our thinking around this. He says, great spiritual dangers always accompanies the democratic spirit. The danger is that we may seek to rid ourselves of not only human, but also divine authority. The danger in a popular democracy is that we try to democratize God. If we don't like God's program, if our eyes are opened and we conclude that God isn't necessarily any better qualified than we are, we simply vote him out of office. Those are the waters that we swim in, people. This is, this is what we are used to. This is what we're taught. We fail to acknowledge that God is El Shaddai. I mean, as I was singing the song earlier and, and thinking about what the, the implications are in our life, and I don't mean to... I don't mean to say anything about Michael Card and, and how he writes music, but I thought the tone of that music doesn't really go along with what the word means. I mean, it's a very sentimental song is how I uh, interpret it. I could be wrong. But he is God Almighty. Should drop. We see Abraham twice dropping to his knees, face down. That's who we're dealing with here. There's incredible seriousness and gravity and awe and reverence that that make our knees buckle, or should, when we're talking about El Shaddai, God Almighty. And we fail to acknowledge that, and we think that we're in charge and he's not, that he can't demand everything of us. We democratize even the biblical understanding of salvation. God chooses you. You don't choose God. God is in charge. Even down to the changes he makes in our lives, and that's the next implication here. God's in charge, clearly, and there is a personal change that goes along with being in the covenant with that God. We see here here that upon entering into that covenant, he changes their names even, doesn't he? In verse 5, you're no longer Abram, you're Abraham. 
Nagasarai, you're Sarah. From exalted father, Abram, to father of multitudes, Abraham. From Sarai, named after a moon goddess, to Sarah, named after God. The A-H on, or E-L on the end of names and at the beginning of names is you're naming that person after the God they, they're going to worship. So it's no longer the princess of the moon, but the princess of God. Yahweh is showing us that entering into a covenant with him will necessarily change you. Entering into a covenant with El Shaddai will change you. External change is a result of that relationship. Pastor Len Sullivan writes of his grandparents in the late 20s, my grandparents married and moved into my grandpa's old family home, he writes. It was a clabbered house with a hall down the middle. In the 1930s, they decided to tear down the old house and build another one that would be their home for the rest of their life. Much to my grandmother's dismay, many of the materials of the old house were reused in the new house. So he says they used their old facings and doors and many other pieces of unfinished lumber. Everywhere my grandmother looked, she saw that old house, the old doors that wouldn't shut, the crown molding that was split and riddled with nail holes, unfinished window trimmings. Change is hard. Many times we hang on to the old, don't we? We Mainers don't like change. We are more so than many people in the rest of the country. We like our old houses. We like our old lives. We like our routines. As the saying goes up here, use it up, wear it out, make do or do without. Right? We live by that. That's not only our mantra. That becomes our idol. But here's the thing. When you give your life to Jesus Christ and the Spirit actually indwells you, you have to change. You have to change. When you enter into a covenant with Jesus Christ, there has to be newness. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. He's not just talking about the outside either. But the inside. He won't just change your name. He's going to change your heart. He's going to change your desires. He's going to change your priorities. He just won't change what you do. He'll change the reason you're even doing that. God just doesn't want circumcision of the skin. Throughout Scripture, even in the Old Covenant, he says, no, 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 no. What I desire is a circumcision of the heart, right? He wants not the change on the outside. He wants the change on the inside. 
That's what Paul wrote to the Roman church in the second chapter. He said, for you are not a Jew, true Jew, just because you were born to Jewish families or because you've gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. The true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. That's it. Right there, brothers and sisters. It's a change of heart produced by the Holy Spirit. That's what God is all about. And that's what he's doing here with Abraham. And that's what we see in our text as our final implication of the covenant. We see a heartfelt response to God. I really want you to notice the biblical pattern here because you'll see it throughout Scripture. Turn to to the beginning of the chapter where God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you. I will make my covenant between me and you. I will is what the first part of the pattern is. NIV says there, as for me. I think it's clearer in the NIV actually. As for me. But then drop down to verse 9. It says, as for you. There's the biblical pattern that I want you to be aware of because it will help you in your reading of Scripture. As for me, as for you. We see this in the Mosaic Covenant too, in Deuteronomy. I will do, and you will do, right? We see this in the New Covenant. Jesus says it. If you love me, what? I will obey. As for me, as for you. In all of Paul's letters, all of Paul's letters, the first part of his letter, usually the first half, is the indicative. The second half is the imperative. The first half tells you what Jesus did for you. As for me, the second half of his letters are as for you. Here are the implications of entering into that new covenant. Here are the implications, husbands, wives. Here are the implications, slaves, masters, children, parents, Jews, Gentiles. The biblical pattern is, as for me, covenant, as for you, response. This is critical in getting right because it corrects our understanding. We have to understand that God acts, man responds. We see this in action in verses 22 through 27 when when Abraham actually responds. And it says, that very day, right? Twice, that very day, he went and circumcised. His response was immediate. It's always God acting, man responding. It's always grace, then obedience. It's always acceptance. You're accepted by God, thus you obey. It's always gospel, then law. It's always gospel, then law. Thus, the reason for our obedience is always fueled by what we have been given by God. Our obedience is fueled by that. If you call yourself a Christian here today, if you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm born again, necessarily, 
there is change in your life. You're not a Christian because you believe you had some water sprinkled on you, either as an infant or as an adult. That does not make you a Christian. Any more than the Jews were in circumcision. No, you're a new creation if the Spirit takes the gospel and applies it to your heart and it changes you. On January 26, 2001, Seiko Sakamoto a plasterer working in a Tokyo subway station, fell into the path of an oncoming train. Lee Su, a Korean student studying in Japan at the time, leapt down onto the tracks to save Sakamoto. Both Lee and Sakamoto were unable to get out of the way of the train, and they both were killed. This selfless act by the Korean on behalf of a Japanese laborer actually rocked Japan. It caused many people's hearts in Japan to break and reconsider their long-held prejudices against the Korean people, which went all the way up to the prime minister that began to speak openly about expressing sorrow about how they had held these stereotypes against the Koreans. Our heart is not changed with the knowledge of the gospel. I know many people that can explain the gospel. You can go to do a man on the street and people could probably explain the gospel. That doesn't mean they're a believer. That doesn't mean they're regenerate. Doesn't mean they belong to God. Anyone can claim that they believe. No, you're saved when the Holy Spirit takes those words of the gospel, that understanding of what Christ has done for you, and applies it to your heart, and it changes you. You're changed by the fact that God Almighty came down and was born and lived a righteous life on our behalf. Galatians 4, 6 tells us that he came down, born of a woman, and lived under the law that he created. That wasn't easy. The fact that most innocent man that has ever lived pled guilty for us. The fact that that innocent man went to the cross, went to the gallows, and allowed himself to be tortured, mocked, and killed. Because someone had to pay for Blake's sin. Someone had to pay. It's either going to be Blake, or it's going to be Christ. When you understand that the gospel is that he jumped down on the tracks and threw me out and allowed him to be obliterated. When that changes the way you live, you're a believer. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us.
so that we can be changed by it this day. You had us in mind, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.